Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Israel is presently going through a tremendous, uh, I, I, I guess the best word is a struggle, concerning the power of the Supreme Court, because over the course of the last 20 to 25 years, the Supreme Court has uh, taken upon itself a lot of power, outsized power, and now the uh, government is trying to pass the laws that will reduce their power. In other words, they want to try to make it equal with the other branches of government. Unlike the United States, the United States you have an executive, you have a legislative, and you have a judicial. Here in Israel, the uh, legislative uh, and, and the executive are pretty much the same, because uh, in the um, legislative branch, they elect certain people, and they become the government, the executive branch. At any rate, what we, the struggle really has to do with the sovereignty of the citizens. So it's very hard to explain all the details of what's happening. There are tremendous demonstrations there for weeks already, hundreds of thousands of people. And I'm quite sure most of the people who are demonstrating don't really understand the nuances of what's happening. And it's hard for me to, in a program like this, to explain to the listeners all the nuances. But I want to give the listeners sort of a general idea of what's happening. And what's happening, among other things, the fact that our president, uh, Yitzhak Herzog, is making pleas for unity and compromise, and uh, he included many positive elements, identified that the Knesset, as the, as the representative of Israel's citizens, is the sovereign. And the president, Herzog, underscored the legitimacy of the democratic, democratically elected government to pursue its policies and advance what it wants to advance. Now, he also highlighted something else, and that is the homogeneous nature of the Supreme Court. Uh, the, uh, the Supreme Court essentially chooses uh, the new members, and it's pretty much uh, left-wing liberals. So the, the, it's not homogeneous. So the president called for diversification. Probably most importantly, he recognized that reform proposals stem from the imperialism of the Supreme Court and essentially a, a uh, breach of balance of powers. Now, he, he came up with a compromise proposal uh, but it doesn't adequately address the central aim of the government's reform legislation. What the central aim of the reform legislation is put an end to Israel, what we call juristocracy, and restoring popular sovereignty. During the past 30 years, the Supreme Court of Israel has carried out a judicial takeover with its power ever-expanding, without any legal or constitutional mandate, judicial rule is conversely proportional to an ever-narrowing ability of Israel's citizens to rule themselves. Now, up until the 1990s, Israel's constitutional system was a parliamentary democracy and modeled after the British. 
1992, the Knesset passed something called the Human Dignity and Liberty Basic Law, with only a minority of its members even voting. The protocols and statements of the Knesset members and leading jurists in that session show a clear lack of intent to grant the Supreme Court the power of judicial review. Israel did not have did not have up to that point judicial review. Someone said it was like Napoleon grabbing the crown from the Pope's hands and placing on his own head. Because the Supreme Court, under the leadership of the former president, Aharon Barak, seized the opportunity to crown itself emperor. Soon after passing the basic law, the head of the Supreme Court, Barak, announced a constitutional revolution in which the court was empowered to strike down laws, something that had never happened before in Israel. The opening shot in the Supreme Court's power flew under the radar. People didn't notice what was happening. But what happened is, with every passing year, the court's power only grows. The Supreme Court has abandoned the need for standing, uh, which means you can't, you can't bring a case to the Supreme Court unless you have what's legally called standing, which limits petitions to those specifically harmed by laws or administrative action. If you're not going to be harmed by the, the law that's, uh, that's up that, that you're against, then you cannot go to the court. You have to have a standing. This has turned the court into an alternative policy-making forum. The court is not bound by what you call justiciability, justiciability, that's how you pronounce it, a doctrine, doctrine that limits it strictly, to, it limits it to strictly legal questions. The, door, the Supreme Court in Israel decides now on oh, just about everything possible, including any laws that are passed. The court regularly issues, issues rulings on security, foreign policy, immigration, and economics. Now, despite nearly 30 years of calls for change, conservative judicial appointments have not stopped the activism. The judges' veto in the, in the, in the Judicial Selections Committee guarantees that jurists who threaten the prevailing, uh, the prevailing paradigm will never be appointed. There is a committee which chooses justices, but the justices of the Supreme Court, together with the lawyers who, who need them, uh, have the majority. So it's sort of pretty much of a monopoly of the Supreme Court to choose other members of the judicial system. The Supreme Court has not yet finalized the uh, what they call the Constitutional Revolution, but it has... Uh, it's, it flirted around with the idea, granting itself the power to strike down basic laws. The court would then become the all-powerful creator, interpreter, and master of the Israel Constitution, when there'll be one. This would effectively end Israel's citizens', ab citizens ability to determine the constitutional system under which they live because of a court's constant veto power. There is no example of any Western democratic country where the court has the final say 
on a yet undrafted complete constitution. More specifically, where is the president's proposal insufficiently clear? Firstly, any plan to change the Judicial Selection Committee's composition that does not remove the judge's veto is meaningless. Right now, the judges have a veto who else is chosen to be a judge in a high court. Judicial appointments must be placed in the hands of elected officials, which is the norm in democratic countries worldwide. This will guarantee a judicial composition that reflects the diverse values in Israeli society. Right now, because the judges essentially choose who else is going to be a judge, it reflects only them. Secondly, Herzog, the president, should clarify that the passage of a basic law that would establish a special procedure for legislating basic laws must be subsequent to the reform plan. In 1995, nine judges in one legal decision irrevocably changed Israel's constitutional status. It's absurd that the man that the elected government clear every jump all kind of hurdles before amending the situation. The Knesset must restore popular sovereignty before it continues making basic laws. And finally, Herzog leaves his vision of reasonableness ambiguous. One of the things that the court does when they strike down the law is they say that it's not reasonable. Now, nobody knows what reasonable means. It means reasonable in the eyes of those particular judges who use that term. Reasonableness is one of the court's main tools of activism. By virtue of reasonableness, the court determines political appointments, makes policy decisions instead of the legally responsible authorities, and even determines who can serve in or lead the government. So, Supporters of the reform, they have to uh, really come together and, and a call for negotiations. But the any resolution must be based on the citizens' right to decide how to govern themselves. Otherwise, Israel will be continue to be ruled by philosophical kings and judges' cloaks. That's what we have right now, that the judges rule over the other branches of the government. By the way, the leading opponents of the judicial reforms uh, has been the media, uh, and uh, which which cloaks themselves with the mantle of uh, protectors of democracy. They refuse to engage in any serious, open-minded discussion. So they, they are, there are you if you turn on TV or the radio. They have hysterical claims about the reforms and threats of violence and civil uprising. They call for shutting down the country. And somebody actually compared the uh, changes to the Nazis. So this is this is the one it's about. We cherish living in a democracy, but these some people seem to only like to live in a democracy when their side wins elections. 
where if the system provides an insurance policy that allows them, even when they lose, to direct the policies and agenda of the Knesset and the government in accordance with their own worldview. The, uh, as I mentioned before, this was uh, also was acquired back in 1995, almost 30 years ago, when the president of the Supreme Court at that time, Aaron Barak, created a constitution out of a 1992 law, as I said, called Human Dignity and Freedom, that passed the Knesset with only 32 votes out of 120. That law provides that there should be no violation of life, body, or dignity, or property of a person except by a law befitting the values of the state of Israel enacted for a proper purpose and to an extent no greater than is required. That's the wording. Now, what happened was that Barak persuaded a generation of Israelis that a law passed by just a quarter of the Knesset, 31 people, constituted its core of Israel's constitution and that the Supreme Court has the power to strike down Knesset legislation if, if in the court's view, it clashed with this human dignity and freedom law. So the adoption and ratification of a national constitution hasn't taken place. It's a lengthy process. It involves the active participation of the people and the legislature until you have a constitution. That has not yet happened in Israel. So it's obvious that both the limitation sections of this human dignity and freedom law as well as each of the exceptions are exceptionally ambiguous and subject to a wide range of interpretation. The determination by Barack, then the head of the Supreme Court, that an amorphous law passed by a small minority Knesset is the highest law in the land, that the Supreme Court has the authority to set aside any government or Knesset action that deems to be in violation of this human dignity law, is is simply has transformed the Supreme Court into a super legislative and executive body, which it should not be. The power to legislate was effectively transformed to the elected representatives of people to judges chosen by a small committee. And sitting on this committee are Supreme Court members who veto any new appointment not to their liking. So th that it's interesting that the the influence of the court starts as soon as the bill is first taken taken up by the governor to Knesset. The positions of the attorney general to the government and the legal advisors to Knesset and government ministries are for the most part filled by lawyers who share a worldview that aligns with that of the Supreme Court. So. They, they, and also a lot of these lawyers eventually want to become judges, so they do what they feel will find favor in the eyes of the government. So it's interesting when back in 1995, when the court judge Barack announced his uh, his post facto interpretation of this human dignity and freedom law, a member of the Knesset, a guy named Michael A. Tan. Uh, he's not in. He's not in Knesset anymore. I knew him. I, he's a very, very active member of Knesset. He was a good member of Knesset at the time, 1995. He described what happened when they had the vote 
and he said the following, two laws were brought to the vote with less than half of the House members present. Nobody mentioned that this was a constituent assembly. Nobody spoke of a revolution. Nobody said the constitutional change was underway. They voted, and only after the fact was they informed of the revolution. Those Knesset members who perhaps knew that this was a far-reaching step deliberately concealed the information from the rest. And this is how you build a constitution? Why was it necessary to deceive the members of the Knesset? So the total disregard of legislative intent or the process by which all their countries adapt constitutions demonstrate that our court leaders had the belief that checks and balances apply only to the executive and legislative branches of government, but not to the judicial branch. So, so the, uh, the, those who oppose judicial reform share this anti-democratic notion that the court is all-powerful. Now, you have to ask yourself, was Israel not a thriving democracy back in 1995 when this happened? Is there no shame in earnestly postulating Israel will stop to be a democratic nation if it reduces the power of the Supreme Court? So, if you allow the Supreme Court simply to annul Knesset legislation, a power never granted to it by the Knesset, is that something that should be taken lightly? It's most ironic and overlooked that judicial reform legislation now will actually, for the very first time, provide a legislative imprimatur to the power of judicial review. Now, the, uh, the, 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 the it's interesting, the, the people who are pushing for this reform have done a lot of research and they compared the reform of what's happening in other countries, democratic countries. The, uh, the, 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 the prime minister of the United Kingdom is not a dictator. Britain is not a dictatorship. Since its, its courts lack the power to nullify laws of parliament, would anyone, anybody conceive of asserting that English judges are not the most respected and influential in the world? They, would it occur to people to warn of the evils and the dangers and instability of England's, England's century-old parliamentary system? Which is the world's probably the world's longest democracy, and it was the, the, the system used in Britain that the the seekers of this change based their change on. So one would expect that uh, that uh, all those well-educated, highly credentialed legal people uh, who charge that Israel would become a dictatorship if it only provides a limited form of judicial review, they should challenge the dem democratic value of what's happening in the ne Netherlands. In the Netherlands Constitution, it says, and I quote, the courts may not examine if a statutory provision is in conformity with the Constitution. The constitutionality of acts of parliament and treaties shall not be reviewed by the courts at all. So, 
this is this essentially is what they're trying to do here in Israel. By the way, by the same token, since the election of federal judges in the United States is entirely political, every federal judge is appointed by the President of the United States and has to get the consent of the U.S. Senate. Would they, would they run to take their money out of banks in the United States? That's what they're doing now in Israel. So I tried to give an idea uh, of this complicated issue, but essentially what, the, what they're trying to do is limit the terribly overloaded power of judiciary in Israel. I'll be back after the break. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. You're back with Jay Shapiro. The question of judicial reform is a very big issue now in Israel. It has brought hundreds of thousands of people into the street, both for and against. <coughs> Most of the <coughs> organized um, demonstrations, well-organized demonstrations, are against the judicial reform, and since it's such a big issue, and I've spoken about it before, but I really want to make sure that the uh, listeners understand what's being argued about, because this will have a very serious effect on Israel's future. So I'm going to say a few more words about it. Leading opponents of the judicial reforms, and by the way, just to make sure that the listeners are aware of the names, the uh, reforms have been proposed by the Justice Minister, who just came into office a couple of months ago. His name is Yair Levin. Now, the leading opponents to this have, with the assistance of a fully enlisted media, sanctimoniously cloaked themselves with the mantle of the protection of democracy and have refused to engage in any serious, open-minded discussions. The President of Israel has called to have meetings of both sides in his house, but that those who are opposed to reform refused to accept his invitation. There are threats of violence and civil uprisings. There are calls for shutting down the country. And additionally, something very horrific in Israel, there are people against the reforms who have compared those who want to reform to the Nazis. So, the side which essentially is against reform is really hard-nosed about it. Rather, their dangerous rhetoric, it's sort of like an elitist and uh, a view of democracy. They cherish living in a democracy, but only when their side wins elections or if the system provides an insurance policy that allows them, even when their side loses, 
to direct the policies and agenda of the Knesset and the government in accordance with their worldview. Now, this was, all goes back to what happened in 1995 when the president of the Supreme Court at the time, his name was Aharon Barak, who's now retired, he uh, created a constitution out of a 1992 law that passed in the Knesset. It was called Human Dignity and Freedom. And interestingly enough, the Knesset, which has 120 members and a uh, majority of government can be formed with the 61, but this law passed with only 32 votes. The law provides it, and I quote, there shall be no violation of the life, body, or dignity, or property of a person except by a law befitting the values of the state of Israel enacted for a proper purpose and to an extent no greater than is required, unquote. So that, that is the wording, of course it's in Hebrew, I give you the English translation. It's something you can almost interpret in any direction that you want. So the then head of the court, Barak, persuaded a generation, 20 years worth of Israelis, that a law passed by just a quarter of the Knesset constituted the core of Israel's constitution and that the Supreme Court has the power to strike down Knesset legislation in all facets of life in the court's view if it clashed with the human dignity and freedom law. So again, the law was passed with a very small number of votes and it's been interpreted as an extremely powerful law giving tremendous power to the courts. In other words, the courts can interpret things the way they like. Now, the truth of the matter is, the adoption and ratification of national constitutions <coughs> are generally lengthy, much debated processes, Go back to you, people know the history of the American Constitution. These processes involve the action and the active participation of the country's citizenry and the legislature in arriving at a consensus. And once it's adopted, provide the legislature and government with clear guidelines and standards. So every section knows the of the government knows what its limitations are. This is not the status today in Israel. It's obvious that both the limitations section of the human dignity and freedom law, as well as each of the exceptions, are extremely ambiguous and subject to a very wide range of interpretations. The determination by Justice Barak that an amorphous law passed by a small minority of a Knesset 
is the highest law of the land and that the Supreme Court has the authority to set aside any government or Knesset action that it deems to be in violence of the human dignity and freedom law. So it transformed the Supreme Court into a super legislative and executive body. That's what this law adopted by a minority did. So the Supreme Court essentially is really supreme and it decides which laws are good, which laws are bad. So it is the ultimate decider. That's what this law did. So what it means is that the power to legislate was effectively transferred from the elected representatives of the people in the Knesset, and it was transferred to judges chosen by a very small committee. And sitting on this committee are Supreme Court members who veto any new appointee not to their liking. The power of the Supreme Court to mold legislation goes far beyond the self-conferred authority to annul laws of the Knesset. Its influence starts as soon as a bill is first taken up by the government or by the Knesset. The positions of the Attorney General to the government and the legal advisors to Knesset and government ministries are for the most part those positions are filled by lawyers who share a world view that aligns with the Supreme Court and with and people like Barack. It is now an increasing common occurrence that laws proposed by a government are aborted at early stage because of what they call constitutional defects, which is a very interesting word. For example, about a month ago, 89 Knesset members, that's 89 out of 120, voted in favor of a bill that would allow for the removal of citizenship or residency from a convicted terrorist who receives money from the Palestinian Authority. That was passed by 89 out of 120 members of Knesset. But the bill's passage is in jeopardy now because of objections from the Attorney General. When Justice Barack announced his post-facto interpretation of human dignity and freedom law, one of the members of Likud at the time, a very active guy, I knew him personally, his name was Michael Eitan, described what happened the night of that vote. And he said the following, two laws were brought to the vote with less than half of the House members present. Nobody mentioned that this was a constitutional assembly, a constituent assembly. Nobody spoke about a revolution, and nobody said that a constitutional change was underway. They voted. Only after the fact was it informed of, we were informed of the revolution. Those Knesset members who perhaps knew that this was the case of a far-reaching step deliberately concealed the information from the rest. 
This is how you build a constitution? Why was it necessary to deceive the members of the Knesset? That is what this member of the Knesset said. So Barack's total disregard of legislative intent or of the process by which all other countries adopt constitutions demonstrate his belief that checks and balances apply only to the executive and the legislative branches of the government, but not to the judicial branch. The strident opponents of judicial reform today share this anti-democratic notion. Was Israel not a thriving democracy with a respected and independent Supreme Court before 1995? Is, it, is there no shame in earnestly postulating that Israel will cease to be a democratic nation that will become a dictatorship, a one-man one rule, if limits are placed on the power of the Supreme Court to annul Knesset legislation, which is a power never granted it by the Knesset in the first place? It is most ironic, entirely overlooked, that judicial reform legislation will actually, for the very first time, provide legislative imprimatur to the power of judicial review. That's what they're trying to do now. Of the many lawyers, the whole kind of people, company CEOs, and, and Nobel uh, and Israel Prize winners who have expressed outrage at the core of this new judicial reform bill, who would like to step forward with silver contempt and self-righteousness and accuse, for example, the United Kingdom Prime Minister of being a dictator and Britain of being a dictatorship since its courts lack any power to nullify laws of parliament? That is the status in England. Would any of them conceive of asserting that English judges are not among most respected and influential in the world, but rather are powerless and not independent? Would it occur to them to warn of the evils and the dangers and instability of England's centuries-old parliamentary system, perhaps the world's longest enduring democracy? So one would expect all those well-educated and highly credentialed legal, business, and political leaders who charge that Israel become a dictatorship it provides only a limited form of judicial review to similarly challenge the democratic nature, for example, of the Netherlands that has the following article in its constitution, and I quote, the courts may not may not examine if a statutory provision is in conformity with the Constitution, the constitutionality of acts of parliament and treaties shall not be reviewed by the courts, unquote. That's Netherlands. Does anybody really honestly believe that without the hysterical warnings from within Israel, investors outside the country would have had the slightest interest in the conditions under which Israel's Supreme Court could annul Knesset laws or in the proposal to add two additional politicians to the committee that appoints judges 
instead of members of the Israel Bar Association. Today, members of the of the uh, committee, nine members, those who appoint the judges include two members of the Bar Association who very much depend on the judges themselves for many of the things they deal with in their personal and professional lives. And therefore, historically, it's been shown that these members of the bar, when they vote for judges, they vote for the same judges as the three judges on the committee want them to vote for. That's how it goes. So you have to ask yourself, do British and Dutch lawyers, business leaders, and academics warn overseas investors that they would be making a mistake putting their money in the United Kingdom and in Holland the way that's happening now in Israel? People who are opposed to this change are telling their investors to stop investing in Israel. In Israel, You see this every day in the paper. Will those companies that have pulled money out of Israel banks so far make sure not to place those funds in British and Dutch banks? By the same token, and this is important, I say this as someone raised in the United States, since the election of federal judges in the United States is entirely political, every federal judge is appointed by the President of the United States, but he must get the consent of the Senate. So at least people keep their money out of banks in the United States. There can be legitimate arguments about various elements of the judicial reform bill that is now, now going through the Knesset. But maligning the country and inviting economic pressure from the international community, which is what those opposed to the change are doing, to, it, it would it make sense to hold on to political control and further a political agenda that's a shameful form of BDS. Professed concerns about the tyranny of the majority should not serve as a cover for the tyranny of a minority. What happened was, we had an election in Israel, the new government has chosen chosen to make changes in the manner in which judges are chosen to see to it that the judicial branch of the government is not a monopoly that is not dominant over the other branches of the government. Now, just to, by the way, uh, unlike the United States, which has an executive, a legislative, and a judicial, actually in Israel, the uh, the, uh, the the Knesset itself forms a coalition, so that, that the coalition in the Knesset is essentially the executive branch. So we don't have the same breakdown that they have in the United States. But as I mentioned a moment ago, if you look to other countries like the United Kingdom, like Holland, which are the two examples that I gave, are they any less democratic 
because they limit the power of their Supreme Courts. That is the major issue that's taking place in Israel now. There are hundreds of thousands of people, literally, going into the streets each week, primarily on Saturday night, protesting against the changes that the government wants to make to make in the power of the Supreme Court. I truly question how many people who go to these protests have any idea of the meaning of the changes that the government is trying to make. Any people, how many people have read the proposed law? As far as I'm concerned, having gone to a lot of uh, demonstration years ago, it's a good way to get together with old friends you haven't seen in a long time and uh, make some noise and feel that you're doing something. I remember when I used to go to all these uh, demonstrations against removing the Jews, for example, from uh, Gush Katif, I knew why I was demonstrating. I sincerely question the percentage of people in the streets today really understand what it's all about. I'll be back after the break. One and two and three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I've spoken about this uh, change in the judiciary system and the power of the judiciary, which is the major subject in Israel, other than terrorism. Terrorism somehow, unfortunately, is always with us. But the primary subject against the headlines and the newspaper and radio and television attention during the past two months, there's been a significant political discussion in Israel regarding the current legal reform, which elicited very strong opinions both in favor and against. In a previous section of the program, I spoke about it. I want to say some more, perhaps from a different angle. As part of the protest against the reform, various individuals, including elected officials, public figures, academics, and journalists, have worked to present the reform as a threat to Israeli democracy, they argue that it could potentially transform the country into an oppressive dictatorship and undermine its liberal values. Now, there are voices, of course, in favor of the reform, but they do not get the attention that the media give to those who are opposed to the reform. That's all you hear about now. Now, the conversely, the Israeli government, which is the initiator of the reform, 
that's been initiated by the new government, which took office a couple months ago, the government has pretty much remained indifferent and inactive in its efforts to clarify the reform's purpose. It has not made any concerted efforts to counter the negative media coverage or engage with the international community. As a result, opponents of the reform have been the primary sources of information for the international media, and their arguments often lack a deep understanding of the reform's nature and potential impact. They're the ones who are being heard. As a consequence of this one-sided presentation, Israel is being depicted in the global arena as a nation whose democracy, democratic principles are under threat. Simultaneously, the opposition and critics of the reform have successfully garnered support from new, numerous Jewish organizations in the United States, Canada, Australia, and Europe to bolster their campaign. For example, the American Jewish Committee, Committee, the AJC, issued a statement about Israel's judicial reform several weeks ago, and they were pretty moderate. They praised President Herzog's efforts for a dialogue, and they called to what they called maintain checks and balances. And further, the American Jewish Committee said the following, at the outset of this process, the American Jewish Committee expressed to Israeli leaders, to the Israeli public, and to our own leadership, our strong belief that any change to Israel's judicial system should not be the result of a deliberative, inclusive process, I'm sorry, should be the result of a deliberative, inclusive process that maintains checks and balances and respects minority rights and liberties, unquote. That is the statement of the American Jewish Committee, and that was one of the most moderate statements. In other words, they didn't take issue with the changes that the government is proposing, but they just said that the argument about the changes should be moderate. The legislation, I, I further quote what the American Jewish Committee said, the legislation that has moved forward in the Knesset thus far and the way in which it has been advanced falls short both substantively and procedurally. But we remain encouraged by President Herzog's efforts to convene a dialogue and find compromise, and we hope that all parties will heed the call. So it's interesting to note, by the way, that the American Jewish Committee acknowledges the difference in the structure of the judicial system between Israel and the United States, because the statement read, 
In the United States, we have a constitution that protects minority rights and civil liberties. We are encouraged by President Herzog's proposal that acknowledge the special status of Israel's basic laws and the need to pre pre prevent a simple majority of the Knesset from making changes that would jeopardize minority rights and civil liberties. Unquote. By the way, the one of the things I don't like about the proposed change is that the Knesset can overrule a decision by the court by 61 votes. 61 votes is the minimal majority, and I think that part of the proposed change, I personally believe, is wrong. It's got to be really a, by a big difference that you changed what the court says. Anyhow, the uh, so you have this big argument that many of the people, particularly those who are opposed to the change, have gone to various American organizations, Jewish organizations, and uh, asked them apparently or pressured them to uh, speak up against the changes. And meanwhile, the uh, there's no, not, hasn't been any really good public diplomacy on the part of the governments. The the uh, actions of the opponents of the act of the reform on the international stage only exacerbate the anti-Israel sentiment and provide more grounds for the global boycott movement to continue their fight against Israel, particularly as even with Israel, some criticize the country for not being democratic or liberal enough. In other words, this argument within Israel is going abroad and it's helping the enemies of Israel to take a stand against Israel. However, despite the clear and present danger, the Israeli government has failed to remain vigilant. While the Prime Minister has granted occasional interviews to American media outlets, he has avoided delving into the specifics of the issue due to the conflict of interest declared by the Attorney General that prevents him from addressing the subject. The Prime Minister Netanyahu is under investigation for, for per, investigation for personal problems. A couple court cases are against him, and therefore the, the uh, Attorney General has says that he can't speak up on these national issues. Now, even if Netanyahu were to speak candidly about the reform, it's doubtful that he alone could effectively counter the well-organized and strategic campaign by opponents of the reform who have already gained significant traction in shaping international perceptions of what's happening in Israel. Now, there was a recent establishment in Israel of what's called the Public Diplomacy Ministry, which is called the Hasbara Minister. Now, they, they set this up, and it really lacks the necessary resources and the power and the budgets, reading the personnel, to make a meaningful impact. In essence, 
It's a non-existent office without any practical capabilities. There was no one presenting the government's argument, not only to Israel, but to the world in general. That is a big mistake. However, interestingly enough, there already is a public diplomacy directorate in the prime minister's office, and it can serve as a valuable tool for the government to communicate, engage diplomatically, and pretty much navigate the political challenges. Despite the potential issue of government officials interfering in legal reform, it remains crucial to demonstrate to the world that debates in Israel are conducted transparently and openly, highlighting the vibrant and democratic nature of the state of Israel. We are a democracy. Therefore, it is essential to provide accurate and detailed information about the proposed legal reform and to explain the, the government's position about the reasonable reasoning behind the government's decision to implement the reform. That is the government's responsibility, not only to Israeli citizens, but to the world in general. We get regrettably, very regrettably, as of today, Prime Minister Netanyahu has not designated someone to serve as the head of the public diplomacy. Netanyahu delayed the appointment of this role for various reasons. Doesn't matter. Point is, there is no one in the government giving a reasonable explanation to the world of the government's position. However, the current circumstances, people going into the streets every week, these circumstances do not allow for any procrastination. Israel's government today requires a head of public diplomacy, diplomacy who can effectively communicate with international media and with the, the public, not only here in Israel, but the public outside of Israel, including the Jewish public, they should spearhead a public diplomacy campaign in collaboration, of course, with the foreign ministry. It should coordinate all government ministries to present a unified message at the spokesman or spokeswoman level and international level and launch a comprehensive public awareness campaign because now there is harmful rhetoric that portrays the state of Israel negatively and anti-democratic and a lot of this is done on an international level by the opponents to the change. In other words, there are people in Israel who are against the change, who are essentially engaging foreign media and Jewish organizations outside the country, and perhaps other organizations, I don't know the details, to, to essentially claim that the state of Israel, under the present government, 
is no longer going to be a democracy. The problem is that there is no public uh, diplomacy czar or leader appointed by the government who can counter these arguments. And it's really important, particularly now when you hear that uh, there are companies pulling their money out of Israel because of this proposed change. Israeli politics offers no respite. Some six weeks after the formation of the government, which followed five rounds of elections in four years, a full right-wing coalition is in power and opposition to its plans for judicial reform is deafening. The coalition seeks to strengthen the power of the government and parliament in relation to the Supreme Court as is customary in many democracies around the world. Despite, despite claims to the contrary, since the justice minister kicked off his judicial reform initiative, there's been no attempt at dialogue by the opposition. Instead, from day one, is attempted to spread alarming messages which many in Israel view as an attempt at perception engineering. When lies about Israel heading towards a dictatorship are repeated day after day, the falsehoods become ingrained. Now, the problem, among other things, perhaps one of the major problems, is the right wing in Israel, for its part, refuses to properly explain its reform. The, the uh, minister uh, initiated uh, his reform uh, with, with, uh, without clearly explaining that's the norm in most countries, thereby allowing the opposition to win the battle. The opposition is fueled, among other things, unfortunately, by a deep-rooted personal anti-Netanyahu sentiment. The people who go to the streets, even before the reform, even before this new government came into office, I know, I live here in the heart of Jerusalem, not far from the prime minister's house. People have been opposed to Netanyahu for years, and they go into the streets just about every week against Netanyahu, whatever the issue is. The issues aren't even important to these people. They want Netanyahu to get off the stage. Every Saturday night, one of the country's main traffic arteries, called the Azriela Junction in Tel Aviv, becomes the site of mass protest held under the slogan that the state is descending into dictatorship. Now, you could ask yourself an interesting question. Would a dictatorship permit democratic demonstrations of this size against it? The, the legislation in the Israeli parliament is customarily rooted through the Knesset's Constitution, Law and Justice Committee. The chairman of this committee is, is a member of the religious party. His name is Simcha Rothman. 
and he is in the driver's seat on, for this change. Now, Rothman has to manage a very difficult committee. The opposition has not made a single offer to improve the judicial reform proposed by the Attorney General. The entire mission is to destroy the reform without any coming up with an uh, offer to improve it. Now, the recent days have seen members of Knesset shouting that the government is wrecking his state, people are fleeing, Israel is turning into a di dictatorship, but they make no specific recommendations for improvement. What's happened, and if you, you can see this on television, members of Knesset have been physically thrown out of committees and backbencher opposition, parliament, uh, opposition parliamentarians with no real achievements that are named are seen jumping up on tables and acting like wild animals. I'm very much afraid that a key factor behind many of these scenes is an, a, an inability to accept Netanyahu's election as prime minister. In uh, February, on February 13th, a 100,000 person rally was held outside the Knesset against him. A glance at some of those demonstrators and demonstrations and the statements heard there reveals that everyone is aware of the details of judicial reform and the strategy for strengthening the executive branch. However, the protests serve the anti-Netanyahu camp, and that is what they are essentially pushing for. So it is a complicated issue, and it's driving a a lot of uh, gaps in the Israeli population. I'll be back after the break. One and two and three and four and five and six and seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. You're back with Jay Shapiro, and I've spent most of this program discussing the arguments and the demonstrations for and against the judicial uh, change, judicial reform that the new government is trying to uh, bring into law. So I think it's time to change the subject. But other things are happening in the Jewish world. I hope that in the course of the previous parts of the program, I've been able to explain what is happening here in Israel so that the listeners will understand. When you're not here on a daily basis and you get the news uh, essentially from Israel and you live abroad, you can often get a uh, stilted or a perverted picture so I tried to give the uh, picture as I see it. Incidentally, I think it's fairly obvious to the listeners, I myself am in favor of this reform, but I tried to clarify what the arguments are about.
At any rate, so let's go on to different subjects. Uh, I want to talk about uh, the legal and legitimate uh, concept of settlement here in Israel. Uh, on February 16th, we learned that once again, the United States is deeply dismayed that Israel is expanding Jewish settlements in the areas that were taken over by Israel in the Six-Day War. The White House put out a statement on the 16th of February, asserted that settlement activity creates facts on the ground that undermine the hopes for peace between Israel and the future Palestinian state. White House Press Secretary Jean-Pierre stated that all this will undermine the geographic viability of a two-state solution. Incidentally, she almost undermined her credibility when in error she said that the, num that the number of thousands of settlements were being built. What she meant was thousands of houses, so she just reads what's put in front of her. She has no idea what she's talking about. However, an earlier statement came from the Secretary of State, Blinken, at the end of a January meeting in Ramallah, where the Palestinian Authority sits. He was more detailed. He said, and I quote, the United States will continue to oppose anything that puts that goal further from reach, including but not limited to settlement expansion and the legalization of illegal outposts, moves towards the annexation of the West Bank, disruption to the historic status quo on Jerusalem's holy sites, demolitions, evictions, and incitement, and acquiescence to violence, unquote. That's Blinken. The, uh, if you really want to quantify Blinken's words, they come out um, as a number of strikes against Israel, well, only the number of small comments against the Palestinian Authority. Worse, violence is not portrayed as a form of active behavior by Arabs of the Palestinian Authority. Blinken sees them simplistically as but acquiescent and as somehow their will is weak. All of this seems to have been but a foretaste of what was announced at Aqaba in Jordan last Sunday at the end of a meeting of senior officials of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, Egypt, Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and the United States. They had a meeting last week. According to the official communique of this meeting, and I quote, the government of Israel and the Palestinian National Authority confirmed their joint readiness and commitment to immediately work to end unilateral measures for a period of three to six months. This includes an Israeli commitment to stop discussion of any new settlement units for four months and to stop authorization of any outposts for six months, unquote. 
that uh, now the question is is there really going to be a freeze there appears to be three basic hurdles that interfere with opponents of Jewish resettlement in the Jewish people's national home. The first is that the Jews, it is claimed, are not a people. They are not a national group. They are but a religion and most an ethno-religious community. So there are people who don't think that Israel deserves a state because the Jews don't deserve a state. They're only a religion. That's number one. The second is that Jews, for a variety of reasons, have no rights at this time to Judea, Samaria, or Gaza. Uh, the third uh, thing is a practical consideration is that Jewish resettlement in Judea and Samaria thwarts and prevents the realization of what they call the two-state solution. Now, all of this is wrong. Settlement, or what we, another word for settlement is the close settlement used, and it is a internationally recognized legal and legitimate right. It was guaranteed in international law. As per Article 6 of the decision of the League of Nations back in 1922, and I quote, you admit the administration of Palestine while ensuring that the rights and position of other sections of the population are not prejudiced shall encourage in cooperation with the Jewish agency close settlement by Jews on the land, including state lands and wastelands, not required for public purposes. That is what the League of Nations said in 1922. Moreover, the granting of the mandate to the British was based on the international, and I quote, international recognition given to the historical connection of the Jewish people with Palestine and to the grounds for reconstituting their national home in that country, unquote. That's what it said, the League of Nations said in 1922. To reconstitute is to constitute again. It means to restore to a former condition. There was a Jewish national home in the past, and it will now be rebuilt. That's what the word reconstitute means, physically and culturally. Indeed, the historical connection is not something petrified 2,000 years ago as only a biblical right, as if that is a somehow inappropriate thing, but it existed continuously throughout the centuries since then. Jews stayed in the land of Israel, immigrated to it, and supported those who lived in it through charities, donations gathered from around the world for literally thousands of years. By doing this, along with preserving religious obligations, 
and the Hebrew language, the Jews remain a people in the best national sense. It is appropriate to debate the national identity of the Jews, if it is so appropriate, why cannot the Arab identity as Palestinians be discussed? Is it prohibited to point out that the Arab resident in this country preferred to be known as Southern Syrians into the 1920s? In the 20th century, a hundred years ago, Jews, through the diplomacy of the World Zionist Organization and the Jewish Agency, they were forced to yield territorial rights to parts of their homeland. An entire new entity, first called Transjordan, was created west of the Jordan River in 1922 after having been invaded by a Saudi Hashemite in 1920. In 1937, the first partition plan was formulated and followed in 1947. Both were rejected by the Arabs. Through a forced ethnic cleansing campaign in 1948, thousands of Jews those not murdered in the Mufti terror waves since 1920 were expelled from Judea, Samaria, and Gaza, which is the very heartland of Israel. However, our rights there, as recognized by the international community, the League of Nations, our rights are indisputable. The concept of two states has been tried time and time again, and it has always failed. Not because of the Jews, but due to the Arab view, the Jews do not belong here, but the Jews deserve a state. That is an intolerable and unacceptable, unacceptable position. The resettlement of Jews in their national home is not violent, does not encroach on any private property. It is a right and not a wrong, and that is something we must continually promote and repeat and let the world know our position. I truly believe that our government is not taking its responsibility and basing our claims on history, on, on uh, what the uh, League of Nations said, and what the United Nations said. And the, all these arguments about setting up a, a Palestinian state, and by the way, that's it, even worse since the Palestinians have made no move whatsoever to create a viable state. So that's the situation now, and I think one of the problems we have, which I mentioned vis-a-vis -vis the conflict in Israel now uh, about the uh, change in the status of the Supreme Court, one of the biggest problems we have in this area, as in other areas, is the lack or the inability of our government to explain its position. In both the case of the change of the Supreme Court 
and in the case of our rights to this land, our position is a solid one, and for really, for lack of presenting our position, it gets us into trouble. I think it's a responsibility of the government in all the cases that are happening now to explain its position coherently. And, and the, the failure to do so is causing us an awful lot of trouble. Now I want to change the subject to uh, some items that are really under the radar. One of them has to do about the Jews in Portugal. I visited Portugal with my wife about uh, 15 years ago, and one of the places we went to was a place called uh, Porto. It's a community in there that has a very nice synagogue. I think the rabbi there was from Morocco. It's way up in the hills in Portugal, not far from the Spanish border. Now what's happening is that today, the founder of the uh, Porto Portuguese Jewish community, who has been called the Portuguese Dreyfus, is a center of a campaign headed by the leaders of the community to posthumously reinstate him in the army after he was unjustly expelled from the Portuguese army for practicing Judaism. By the way, in the synagogue, and one of the synagogues, I think in Lisbon, there are a list of the Jewish soldiers uh, who died for Portugal, many of, many of them in um, the uh, wars in Africa that most American Jews don't even know about, or that most Americans don't know about. There were all kind of wars in the southern part of Africa that Portugal was, uh, was engaged in. At any rate, the... Uh, this gentleman who passed away is named Captain Arthur Carlos Barros Basto, B-A-S-T-O. He was a Portuguese army officer who was declared immoral in June 1937 for helping returning Jewish descendants get circumcised. Now, this campaign to get him reinstated follows similar ones that took place in the last couple of years in light of an amendment put in place for a local law offering descendants of Jews the opportunity to apply for Portuguese citizenship. That's kind of interesting. Portugal is an interesting country, and if I'm not mistaken, most of its citizens don't live there. They're all over the world. Three weeks ago, the Jewish community in Oporto, in Portugal, called on the European Commission to instigate an impartial international investigation and in what they called anti-Semitic action took place in Portugal using robbers and murderers and convicts who intended to defame the country's strong Jewish community, destroy Jewish leadership, halt the influx of Israeli citizens, and end the law that granted Portuguese citizenships to Jews of Portuguese origin. Now, this is what I just said now is according to the Oporto Jewish community. 
Now, the leading the average interest, interest interestingly enough, is the granddaughter of this uh, captain in the Portuguese army. Her name is Isabel Barros Lopez. And what she's essentially doing is continuing her mother and grandmother's efforts to have the great-grandfather, uh, sorry, the grandfather posthumously reinstated. Now, what she said, and this is quite a, sort of funny if it wasn't tragic, and I quote, she said, the state is now claiming that my grandfather needs to be alive and can only receive the posthumous reinstatement if he requests it personally. Now, if he were alive today, he'd be 136 years old. So the chances of him creating, uh, doing this personally are pretty slim. For decades, it was largely only his closest relatives who fought the recognition, according to a press release put out by the community. The parliament, back in 2012, however, the Portuguese parliament stated that Basto has been the target of political and religious persecution and advised the government to reinstate him into the Portuguese army. So, uh, by the way, the following year, in 2013, the army, the Portuguese army, officially declared that he could be posthumously reinstated as, as a colonel. The rank he would have reached in November 1945 had he not been expelled from the army. So, Apparently, no documentation has been given to the family yet, so uh, they don't. Uh, they want. They're petitioning the government to see to it that the. Uh, it's interesting. The uh, he was uh, he was expelled from the army. He spent the end of his life, according to his granddaughter, filled with bitterness and sadness. So. Uh, by the way, they made a, a film about him in 2019 called Sepharad. It tells the story of the captain who's been called the Portuguese Dreyfus. And it can be seen on uh, what's called Vimeo. Anyhow, that's a, something way under the headlines. And uh, it's hard to find articles like that. But it's interesting. A Jewish captain kicked out of the army. 1945 is now being reinstated. Well, that's the way things are. Thanks again for listening. Jay Shapiro signing off. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the IsraelNewsTalkRadio.home page, log in as yourself or an anonymous guest, and join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio, and you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us. We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? At Israel News Talk Radio, we're dedicated to sharing Israel's inside story with the world by providing our listeners with news on Israeli politics, current affairs, and Israeli Jewish culture. 
The Israel News Talk Radio homepage also provides you, the listener, with useful information at your fingertips. With scrolling news headlines, weather, currency exchange, Shabbat candlelighting times, and so much more. Our radio programming is always accessible and on demand. We operate absolutely free of charge for everyone, everywhere. If you love what we do, partner with us now by becoming an Israel News Talk Radio supporter. With your support, you'll be inscribed on our Israel News Talk Radio Wall of Fame. There's nothing like us in the world. Be part of something great. Israel News Talk Radio. Straight talk from Israel. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. 